Hello and welcome to an afternoon session of Leviathan News. We have a special guest, Back the Bunny. Welcome. Hello, hey guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. I appreciate the outreach. Nice yeah, absolutely. Was, we were talking about Miladies, and uh, sure enough, just like a day later, you popped out your thread. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been thinking about that for a bit, and I've been a fan of him for long. I thought it might be interesting to kind of opine on why I personally thought they were being so successful and why they're like part of a continuation of counterculture trends that keep evolving and escalating in response to escalating cultural pushback. And yeah, I just thought it'd be a cool parallel. Can we talk about countercultural trends? Um, because I don't think there is counterculture anymore, at least not in the sense that you, we had it like 15 or 20 years ago. It's almost dead. Like counterculture is dead except for these like dark recesses of the internet. You know, like you're you're not walking out and like gawking at some punks or goss and wondering why society is wrong now. Now you're like mm. questioning the philosophical uh, construction or the philosophical meta analysis that goes into like meme life instead. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, I, it's funny. You said their counterculture is dead. Then you went on to enumerate the countercultures, though. They're just not manifesting in ways that are traditionally uh, how, how they how they get, uh, present themselves. And I think that's a continuation of kind of the technological proliferation and adoption of us existing increasingly online and digitally. So that's where this is. In, that's where that's where the edgiest people are are inhabiting and kind of growing these sort of movements and visuals. Whereas, like beforehand, you know, before we had the internet when, you know, it was punk and it was, you know, goths and mohawks. And, you know, I got images there of like Fred Durst and Limp Bizkit kind of stuff. Like the internet wasn't like cool yet, right? The internet was sort of like what Urbit or what even parts of DeFi is now, like kind of nerdy, weird space where, you know, only like techies or guys who like really are into it go. And and now the internet's been, is now a place where like, you could say the, the mohawk wares of the seventies are existent. And it's just not very visible in like a meat space manifestation. Like if you go out and walk around, you'd be like, where's the counterculture? Like I just see a bunch of normies. And I think it's because the counterculture-ers uh, have abandoned that space largely. Like the digital sphere, I think is where that occurs. And it's where like, if you're, you know, a very online person like all of us are, and like I certainly am, almost too much so, you start to see that. And you see the leading indicators of, of where these countercultures or of where these movements happen. And, you know, the dark recesses of the internet you described now, hey, you know, that's that's like the that's the Satan worshiper of the 60s, right, of the 70s of like, oh, my God, I can't believe he said that Satan. Like, that's horrible. Like, whoa, you know, I hold my cross up. I can't accept that. I mean, that's what Milady is. Milady is literally like holding up an upside down cross and being like, look at it. Look at it. Like, that's what we are. Um, and it's having the response that, you, that, that Satan worshiping had in like the 60s, 70s. Like, holy shit. Like, this is terrible. Um, but like, that's the design of the gatekeeping mechanism of how they, one, make the statement that gets noticed, push back on orthodoxy that kind of has permeated things and, you know, uh, go out of their way to be repellent to ortho to establishment norms, beliefs, orthodoxy, et cetera. Um, it has to be like overtly, uh, just, uh, visible and, and repellent in that way to get 
to send a message. And that's why I like look past the explicit communication of them and like the implicit communication of them. It's like, what are they really trying to do when you say things like that? Because there's like two reasons why you communicate. One is like directly what I'm trying to say to you. And the other is to maybe send a message. And to me, you know, ladies are sending a message. It's not really the explicit communication. It's the messaging of what this is uh, repudiating. So. Yeah. I, I think it's almost like a signaling mechanism where, you know, you think back about like, you'd be the lone goth in your city, right? You're, you're essentially like dressing a certain way to signal a certain set of like ideals or music tastes or like right. really just tastes and preferences in general, right? And that by uh, eschewing the normie structure of um, typical, Amer like typical life, right? Uh, you, you're like blatantly showing how you think or or what you uh consider the world in a in a kind of uh epistemic sense but yeah. but now like modern fashion has in, in almost the internet really it's really the internet has co-opted everything to the point where you know you talk about satan worshiping now you now you have some of like the largest celebrities in the world wearing like upside down crosses and performing uh, mm -hmm. like satanic style rituals on stage in their concerts and no one bats an eye they just say like, normified exactly when, when counterculture becomes culture it becomes boring and unremarkable but yeah, yeah exactly right anyway yeah keep going yeah yeah so like i think in the, i think in the physical space like we've gotten to the point where you know tiktok instagram everything else has has taken the um, like physical countercultures. And I think they're all destroyed, right? They've all kind of migrated onto the internet because the internet is like the last vestige where your like normie people just don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. People can understand fashion and culture and, uh, or sorry, fashion and clothes and stuff, but like deep milady memes are a little bit more difficult, I would say. Yeah. And to, uh, to extend yeah. the analogy a bit, like in the 90s, all the moral panic out of Washington, D.C. was rap music lyrics, right? Now, right. you know, rap music is performed at the Super Bowl, right? But now out of Washington, D.C., it's Elizabeth Warren blasting shadowy super coders. So we, we're, yeah. you're right on that level. We are the new uh, moral panic. Yeah, yeah. And that's, a, that's a, a great point. I mentioned, like, you know, it went from rock music to, like, now that's innocuous and no issue to, like, gangster rap. And now it's like, all right, now that's whatever. You know, it was Allen Iverson and tattoos in the early 2000s. Like, he can't. He can't wear that sitting on the sidelines. And now it's just like they all dress that way. So like you just see this continuing like movement of the Overton window on what's acceptable discourse, what's acceptable presentation, et cetera. And, you know, like it's an escalation of that basically to now we're not in the sphere of visuals. We're in the sphere of like ideas or the counterculture. And that's kind of what Milady does. And another reason why they're inherently kind of valuable and why why signaling in general is valuable is i mean humans always try to bucket themselves into we try to form heuristics right and like you even see it in prisons um with gang tattoos um if they can't if they can't segregate themselves by race they'll segregate themselves by tattoos um you see it in the business world you know I, I, you guys mentioned some of you've been in midtown manhattan before like you can pretty easily tell the finance bro types from you know other certain things like they'll wear the vest or whatever so people like like to have signaling that shows immediately how you can associate themselves and like the goth back in the day you could just look at them and immediately tell okay you reject i know you're gonna ha i know, already know what viewpoints you're gonna have about certain things just purely off your dress what you're making very flamboyant it's like peacocking right like i'm signaling immediately like what i think 
And the milady is like the peacocking of, you know, uh, the internet counterculture thing. And it, it solves like a 4chan coordination problem of, you know, an anonymous forum, you really can't coordinate people outside of that. It's very hard. It's sort of a way to actually unify them and like, hey, listen, you can tell by my PFP and by this, I have these associated kind of mentality, belief, et cetera. I'm the punk rock of the internet, you know, and it just allows them to coordinate better too. So like, there's like a manifold kind of like social signals going on here with them that I just, you know, I think I love. Whereas a uh, board ape doesn't really say the same thing, right? No, it does. <laughs> just in different ways, right? Like, uh, you know, board apes is not, I, I think board apes is trying to uh, expand the brand. Board, board apes tells right. people you're willing to give them your seed phrase if they ask politely yeah. and deeply. <laughs> but board, yeah, right. board apes I, is the is the. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I think it's a just touching on your point. I think uh, the the difference between uh, board apes and milady emphasizes the exact uh, cultural difference that you've mentioned, uh, Bunny. Like. Uh, if you make it mainstream, if you make it within a norm, uh, it's not cool anymore. That's it. So, uh, so we need something else. And to me personally, the milady is uh, so intriguing. Like to see this community, it's it's so organic and authentic, and really uh, yeah. has a, has a specific culture and idea ideals of its own. That honestly, it's uh, right now by far, in my opinion, the strongest NFT community because. Because uh, they're not, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, uh, to be honest, but there is no, uh, there is no condition. They are miladies because they are miladies, not because there is a treasury, not because they offer uh, stuff, not because there's a roadmap and uh, a big, uh, like, uh, you know, company behind them and all that. The exact mm -hmm. opposite. And I think that's what uh, keeps them so, uh, like, uh, authentic and united, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that lack of, um, of like documentation and leadership I touch on in the thread too. Like that is disorienting to, you could say normies who, you know, I, I should say normies, like people are oriented oh, around it is, structure. It is normies. No, it is. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's fair. But like, I mean, even I like my own structure depending on what's happening, but like in a cultural realm, if you remove like the orienting structures of like, you know, a, a roadmap, a white paper, a leader, that's disorienting to normal NFT types. Like, oh, wait, wait, what is this? It's just, just a scam project. Like they're looking for the normal heuristics that let them understand where value or, or credibility lies. And not having that immediately gatekeeps or self-selects for removing those people. So like all of these things they do, like keeps self-selecting to remove the type of person who needs these normal things to kind of feel comfortable. And uh, like, I guess Bored Ape does communicate something, but it can be, I mean, Bored Ape, uh, if miladies are Mohawks, like Bored Apes are a baseball cap. Like they're just safe. They're normal. They're like, I, I do like, I'm following things that are okay and comfortable. I'm doing something that an HR department at a, at a company would be okay with. Right. Um, you know, that's a communication, right? So it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. But don't you think they're a victim of their own success where, you know, you saw this kind of with punks, like as, as the punks gain popularity, it became like way more milk toast as they, they spread. You get a lot of people who may not even be associated with like the early Ethereum culture starting to buy them and using them as their PFP. Same goes for the, the apes as well, too, where like, you know, they're, they're a victim of their own success where, you know, you have Eminem and uh, other celebrities basketball players like changing their pfps to be board apes right and right, right and like really leaning into that as like an identifier and 
I think the thing, like, there definitely is waves. Like, if Miladies were to get super huge, um, to the point where they're like 50 ETH a piece uh, for the NFTs, like maybe maybe there would be a sea change in opinion and like something new would come along. But I do yeah. think I do think there's something like um, you can you can say like sinister or like deviant or uh, I don't know like just just there's a, something a bit different, right? They're not as they wouldn't you wouldn't call them as mainstream as those two, right? Because those two have generic art styles. One's eight bit for punks. The other one's kind of like comic style. Well, Milady's like is derived out of this 4chan idea of like the like fat like a like a, a fat anime's guy ideal of of a woman right of how they, <laughs> how they would want it right and so right, right. yeah and so there is something there is something like quite uh specific of internet culture that defined uh what the miladies are yeah yeah and you know that victim of your own success thing well in a cultural movement that's an inexorable problem like if your if your counterculture movement is ultimately successful, that success defined here simply means more people catch on to it, more people put it the PFP or associated with it. Um, that means you you probably you dilute the uh, the tribalistic kind of narrow beliefs that kind of it was founded upon. It gets diluted a little bit, and then it kind of becomes a little lame and not cool anymore. But then those people move on to the next thing and make it cool, and then mm -hmm. everyone plays catch up to that. So that's like kind of a cycle of how. Anything culturally has been edgy, interesting, catches people's beliefs. Now it's mainstream. Now it's whatever. And then you, it's on to the next. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, you can tell Board Ape is very com compliant and normie core friendly because all of those celebrities put it as their PFP. Like, I'm sorry, Eminem is not that edgy anymore, actually. He was really edgy back in the day. I don't know if you got, I mean, I grew up on Eminem. I remember the Marshall Mathers LP, like the, do that. He went hard in there. He would never publish something like that today, like which speaks to like how neutered he's become and frankly kind of like PC rap, right? Like he actually kind of is. Um, and you can tell, like, when Steph Curry, when all these guys do board Ape stuff, it's like, okay, well, this is a very safe thing to be. This is not counterculture by virtue of the large people initially off the bat uh, gravitating towards it. So, yeah, Milady's cool. It might become not cool eventually just by virtue of everyone liking it, but that means they were successful, I guess, and then those same people are going to go even further out onto the curve and start the new thing. And that's just the cycle that it, it always happens. I mean, are there oh. any, are there any, like, uh, let me go a second, Garrett, but are there any, like, countercultures that we can point to which... I guess never made the mainstream and still exist as that, that were never like commodified and commercialized. I mean, they'd have to by definition be not successful then. Like you can all look at all subcultures here, like uh, gamers as an example, like I remember the gaming community and like, I don't know if that counts as a counterculture, but they certainly seem to have some milady esque undertones to them. Like mm -hmm. back in the day, like you could say around the Gamergate time or so. And now gaming is, you know, it's very, open and not that uh so I, I think that like to answer your question if we were to find those then they would be definitely not successful because they didn't catch on and become like for, for them to be successful means eventually they become normal and lame right. it's sort of like this catch-22 of counterculture success you are you are if you want it to win that means within a year or so or however long it takes it's going to become not cool anymore and you got to be innovative and move on to the next if you're someone who wants to keep it up I think uh, I really like your analysis about all this uh, stuff. I, I definitely uh, can relate to it. What were you saying, Gat? 
I have a couple of questions. First of all, how does all this relate to kind of the Elon Musk effect? Because when Elon Musk tweeted the Milady, uh, like I don't follow Elon Musk, but like it just blew up my timeline because everyone was talking about it. Um, but then also more particularly to something you have expertise with, like how does this Milady counterculturing signaling uh, tie to your Vietnamese farmer thread, which basically you talk about how like crypto's under attack, so we need to adopt the mindset of a guerrilla Vietnamese farmer uh, fighting off an imperialist power, you know, <laughs> here uh, how you synthesize the two yeah so um elon with the milady meme like obviously he's still in close touch with grimes and grimes has some like milady adjacent you know sort of things going on and what have you so i'm sure he found that through way of them he probably doesn't know anything about them beyond i, I would be surprised if he actually knew anything about milady the meme is funny like the there is no meme i love you like that's a really like just as a as a template you know it's it works and it's kind of his speed in terms of memetics i think if he had found anything that was kind of funny or cute that had that he might have shared it so i'm not sure if it comments much on milady it does make it more visible but i don't think it at all signals that like elon is like a fan I thought I think Elon just like tweets things that get he, Elon likes attention, obviously. I mean, we all do. But like Elon loves the visibility and he he does have he does like our space. Like I, I see some of the people he follows in like the uh, AI sphere and some of the stuff he comments on in, in, for CT accounts. And he does. He looks at our stuff. So and, and he likes us. And I think he wants us to think we're cool. Uh, he's cool. And I think that's like something he saw like, OK, well, you know, hey. This scores me points. I, I think that's kind of his metagame there is really just like, I want to stay in vogue and to do that, I need to comment on things that people who use my account like, who use my 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 business, my my new property, Twitter, like. So I think he, he goes out of his way to make people feel like he's one of them. He'll, he'll reply guy on threads and tweets sometimes because it makes people feel good. That's a customer for life when you get an Elon reply, like, holy shit, like you are a Twitter lover, fan, power user forever. When he tells you I've subscribed to your stuff, like, dude, like he, he probably has, but he's not, he's not reading it. Like he just wants you to feel like, Hey man, I appreciate you. Like it's the same thing as like a small business owner sending you a handwritten card saying, thank you for shopping at Larry's appliance store. Right? Like you're always going to go to Larry's now. Like, wow. It's, it's kind of that thing with him. So I, I don't see like his behavior. There as like a, a endorsement. I see his actions. That's very business oriented to make us like him. Um, and uh, so that, that's on the, that one. And then um, how like Milady ties into like the Vietnam farmer kind of uh, ethos, um, which, it, you know, it's funny, like the Milady PFP, I've heard a lot of people say, and I, and I love this, like Milady is the wartime PFP. Uh, when you, when you put a Milady there, it means like you're ready for battle. Like they want uh, Brian Armstrong to put a Milady there. Like he's going to war. Um, and which ties into like, uh, you know, the, the, the Vietnam farmer uh, meme that I have for like my Generations of War and Crypto series where I'm basically likening, you know, war is a leading indicator in business. It's been that way actually for a while in terms of strategies warfare adopts that usually, you know, that sometime later business ends up adopting and there are strong parallels there. Um, you know, when I was reading and learning about that and just, you know, on my own time, I was like, hey, you know, crypto there's we're not going to be different from this like we're not special like we're probably going to follow these same business oscillations and cycles and war is a leader leading indicator for business is going to be a leading indicator for us um and that's why i don't think like you know legal analysis things like that I, I think it's a game theory analysis to really understand how crypto ends up winning which i think it very much does end up winning because i think it's yeah, for the same reason pirate bay has won um you really can't stop peer-to-peer -peer networks 
Uh, they've been trying to stop that for a while. You can download whatever you want from Pirate Bay. Like this is a peer-to-peer -peer network that is obscenely well-capitalized, is globally distributed, is armed with cryptography and AGI, and has all the intellectual talent. Like you're not going to beat us. Like there's just too many of us. We're legion. We're everywhere. And and kind of hearkening from the same kind of wars that the U.S. loses. Like the U.S. is where it is because it's really one wars. Like it has a great constitution, you know, it, so long as it adheres to it, um, and you know, system. But really, like it won the most consequential war of our of the last hundred years, and it's won wars historically. But it's won those wars against big central powers, against Germany, against Japan, against Mexico, against the USSR. Right? It, it's really good at defeating central militaries that occupy land that have traditional manifestations of like violence. Who have they lost to? Like they they lost the Viet Cong. Like they lost the Vietnam because it was just an exhaustive war that they didn't care enough about. And it's very, very, very hard to, to win guerrilla warfare. Who did they lose to recently? We just left Afghanistan a year ago. You know, goat hoarders. Like we, we lost. Like we spent trillions of dollars there and Afghanistan is the same and it's now run by the Taliban like it was before. We, we lost that war. So it's like, what, what's the theme there about why we're losing those wars? These are guerrilla warfare combatants that are fighting for their homeland that care more than you do and want to win more than you do. And they're using tactics that you're just not suited for. Um, and I draw that parallel to, to us and regulators. Like the SEC is built to go after Goldman Sachs. It's built to go after Deutsche Bank and Barclays and big central brokers and entities where I have a compliance department, I have a CEO, I have a business, I have an office, I can go in. Like that's what the SEC was built to go after, understandably so. Um, they're not built to go after tens of thousands of developers globally and millions of users globally using products with anonymizers like VPNs, mixers, like the resources are not there for the same reason that, you know, we were not able to take on guerrilla warfare combatants. This is a way harder, way more advanced Vietnam farmer in what we are. So that's like when I say we are the Vietnam farmer, own that meme and the tools you have and understand that like for the same reason guerrilla warfare wins in these domains, it's going to win here. So just just don't die. Just stay alive. Keep doing your thing and know we're going to win. I think the response to that is this increase in surveillance, right? Like you you, you simply cannot have a free and open internet and have, uh, I mean, like for, for DeFi to exist, there, there has to be free and open internet. And so the only way to combat all these things is to have like crackdowns uh, like you're seeing in Brazil right now where they're like banning VPNs. Right. And then you fully KYC everybody who uses your internet. And then you're doing real time monitoring of every single transaction. But like, that's pretty dark and twisted. And I like, I know we're creeping towards that here in the United States. And some yeah. other major economies might have those systems in place at the moment. Uh, but I would hope that, you know, free and open source and our free speech protections would somehow, uh, allow for this version of the internet that we have or at least like the the ideal version that we have in our heads to to continue uh indefinitely yeah yeah and you know the, um a prediction i made in generations of war part two uh you know i said uh, these are like two you could two you know kind of angles i think they're going to take because i ultimately do not think you know this is this is a zero-sum power game and the us's empire and its ability to exert control is hugely precedented or predicated upon its ability to control financial infrastructure. Like the way it does dollar diplomacy is through sanctions. And it does that through the banking system. It does that through SWIFT. It does that through disallowing Russia and Iran to do things. Like crypto <laughs> completely subverts that. 
And it completely subverts their ability to, you know, get tax effectively, to know who's transacting, like to, to control the most important flow of information, which to me is money, because money is effectively communication of value. So that, that's how they run their thing. And that's what that's what DeFi undermines. So like viewing this as a zero-sum power game, which I mean power absolutely is a zero-sum game, like economics is not a zero-sum game, but but control is. Like this, the control of this entity is getting reduced and disintermediated. They're not going to take kindly to that. And I don't think, you know, I, I hope our documents and our constitution on our will as a people are enough to push back on political uh, attempts to undermine us and completely subvert freedom of speech. But I don't think it will, because um, I, I, I ultimately think this this represents an end game kind of for the U.S. empire as it is now. I don't think this means the U.S. dies. I just think it means it becomes like the United Kingdom or Germany, like, you know, just an important country, but it's not calling the shots globally anymore. Um, and I just don't think that I, from a game theoretic standpoint, that's why I, I'm blackpilled near term that they're going to come hard for us. They're going to come after VPNs. They've already dropped a bill that had language banning VPNs. In my thread, I said, like, they're going to go after VPNs and they're going to go after cloud providers. Like we already know banks are doing Operation Chokehold. That's obvious, right? The flows. But what are the next linchpins? VPNs for anonymizing. There was a bill that was released recently. It was like using a VPN for a banned product. It's like $25,000 fine or like something ridiculously onerous. That was in a US bill recently. US. That was maybe like a month and a half after I, after I put that out. And then I think next up too, they're going to go after the likes of AWS and Azure cloud providers that help with nodes and validators and front ends and stuff like that being like hey listen this is a no fact sanctioned entity is there kyc happening here oh there's not so you are aiding and abetting entities that are allowing OFAC sanctions to be subverted you are in trouble microsoft azure like azure is not going to have any allegiance to us or aws they're going to dump us so i think they're going to go after the infra as much as the banking yeah. So I would just encourage us to be prepared for that. <clears throat> I mean, we were seeing this yesterday. We talked about this yesterday on Leviathan. We talked about a story where the European Union is drafting up like an AI regulation bill. And part of the bill is that that open source AI models are illegal. Like you have to get a license. And, and hosting an open source model on GitHub would be illegal. And it would, it would allow the, the law would allow the EU or anyone in the EU to sue that third party extra territorially. So someone in the European Union could come to say Microsoft and say, we're suing you because or, or whoever owns GitHub, right? Like to come to GitHub and say, we're suing you, this code is up. It's an illegal AI model that has not applied for the proper licensing in the, in the EU. Uh, you're now liable for like $20 million. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, unless you take yeah. this down and then and then they 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 would go after like past github they would go after like aws instances that are running illegal models that are have open api access you're um, hiding an llm under the floorboards <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> no i know it's funny like it's are you hiding an llm or are you hiding open source developers under those floorboards right <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, the EU, though, like, dude, I don't even know what to say about that. Like, they just seem hellbent on, on just a regulatory, just like, what, why, why is there no Apple or Microsoft or Facebook? Like, why does the, like, nothing in Europe, like, these are the people who leave the country, their diasporas found those things here. Like, the same thing with Indians, like, 
India doesn't have, I mean, India is much more developing than Europe, obviously, but like when you take Indians out of India, they do a phenomenal job. Like they're, <laughs> they're amazing here. Like they run, they're the CEOs of a lot of companies. So it's like, what about the Indian structure is not allowing those people to be successful in India? I'd say the same thing about Europe. Like why do Europeans, the diasporas in the US and otherwise found these massive technology companies, but in Europe, like what the best we have is a um, ASML. Right. It's like a, a, a semiconductor company that's, that's incredibly important, but it's not a big tech company. So like their regulatory approach is just unbelievably backwards. And this is just a complete proxy for that. It's like, dude, what are you guys doing? Like you just want to be completely left behind and be this like quaint vestige of, of just a nice place to go that just doesn't want to grow at all, I guess. I mean, whatever, if, they, if that's what they want, I suppose. But it just seems to be something rooted and run. Like you can tell this is regulation it by lawyers, not by technologists. Is it just that though, or do you also think there is also an element of uh, corruption? Because I think that like uh, very like uh, you know, society is built on hundreds of years with there's, there's like a different type uh, or amount of corruption uh, in different parts of the world. And personally, I think that uh, most regulatory issues are not really uh, uh, decided like we imagine them being decided uh, for the greater good and all that stuff. I think corruption is a much bigger deal uh, than we say, and that's exactly why uh, even, if they go, if, uh, even if they go for Deutsche Bank or uh, Lehman Brothers or Goldman Sachs or whatever, usually they don't do that much because, uh, you know, it's, it's actually corrupt. They just need you to think they're doing something, not actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's there to some varying degree everywhere, including the U.S. I mean, like pork and the lobbying that goes on, like, I, I think that's corruption light to just blatant corruption. You know, um, maybe certain forms of it are more hidden in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, I mean, if there are kickbacks or things happening that kind of speak to why they would do that, then when, when you say corrupt, I, 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 my, my thoughts in there on how that manifests is someone is receiving payments or benefits illicitly to put something out there from a regulatory standpoint or whatever, they're acting in, in their self-interest and not the self-interest of the of their constituency. Like that's what corruption is, I guess, if we're gonna define that. And defining it on those terms, I'm not sure how like regulators and politicians are, <laughs> like you benefit if your economy grows, you get more tax revenue, you get to spend more, you get to enrich yourself that way. You have to become richer though. Like if you, if a good, a good corrupt person understands that he's a parasite and needs to leech effectively off his host and make them stronger so he can become stronger. Right. So it's like this behavior does not make your host stronger. Like it leaves you behind. It, it, it kind of puts you in the corner of sub 2% GDP growth, if, if not less for a long time. I just don't even see from a self-interested angle why you would not want this to at least allow yourself to stay up so you can keep milking the cow if you're that kind of, you know, person trying to act in their self-interest. I, I just think they operate in, in, in this way that like the GDPR is a great proxy for this too. It's just a very like fear-minded Luddite approach to, you know, I, I think it's just inertia, frankly, if I view the European mentality towards stuff. Um, anyway, yeah. That's like too uh, long-term of, of a mindset, I would think though. Like if you look like Rome took 500 years to fall, uh, you know, nowadays it might be faster, but still like, you know, the European powers you mentioned, it's been like a gradual decline. Uh, politicians mm. are in power for just a few short years. So I feel like if the Titanic is sinking, you don't try and right the ship. You try and grab the fine China and get to your lifeboat. That's a good point. You know, I'm describing corruption more from like the Chinese lens because they're in office forever and they don't have to worry about elections, right? Yeah, you're right. If you're shorter term... 
Uh, yeah, there, there's probably two tiers of corruption. One is enriched enough to stay in power to keep extracting value, and then one is like just near-term kickbacks, like Nancy Pelosi corrupt uh, corruptism. <laughs> um, yeah, but even viewing it from that lens, I just don't get how disallowing LLMs or I, gatekeeping like that. Maybe you get your licensing fees higher, and you know people have to go through the regulatory process, which gets you fees for having to do that. It's just even viewing this as like a nefarious minded person who's trying to be like sociopathic and how do I act in my own interest? I just, how, like, what do you, uh, how do you, how does not letting open AI operate in your company? Where, where's the, like, where's the angle there? You know, no, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's like the majors operating companies. I think it's fine because you know, they can KYC everybody. They have the cost to comply with all the regulation. It's more mm -hmm. about like smaller startups who just put code out there. Right. Just release yeah. some code, release a model, like, or open source developers who just, take some code and release it like you know yeah, the, yeah. The, those sorts of things are are i think are much more worrisome uh to this the structure that we have and it kind of comes back to why you know potentially like ai and crypto will go well together is that they're both heading towards this highly regulated path or at least finance has been there for a long time right but this new sector of ai is also barreling towards being extremely regulated and uh it could have a, an offshoot like in the sense of crypto where you have this fully unregulated, uncensorable AI model that's just out there and run by by people with nodes or something like who knows who knows what could happen there. And it's they're there. already out there, by the way. Yeah. They're, they they exist. Like I have some LLMs from Meta, like you can torrent them. They've been leaked. So. Yeah. So I mean this data is always gonna get linked. I mean, like there's no there's no moat in AI and there's no moat in crypto. Just you you build on the back of memes and you meme yourself into just existence right which happened bitcoin bitcoin exists as a meme and uh it's you know it 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 continues as such yeah i i would say like there, there probably is always structurally a moat in everything and i would say like when the, the nature of open source though is to say that your moat is not your tech like by definition, because everyone can see it, take it, right? So the moat is no longer what we would associate with the word moat with like a SaaS company or a normal company where your moat is your IP, it's your brand, it's whatever. Um, whereas like the moat, yeah, there's not a moat in that standpoint from like LLMs or crypto. So like the moat is uh, the data, the moat is the users. Like Uniswap doesn't have a moat, right? It's open source. It's moat is it's liquidity and users. Like we're going to see how much of a moat that is, I guess, because I'm, I'm really not sure. Like, if DYDX is successful with their app chain, that would be a really, really interesting thing where if they're able to migrate their users and liquidity with them, that means that they control the relationship and it's not the layer one. That would put a lot of stress on the FAT protocol thesis. So like, it's going to be curious to see how moats manifest with organizations and LLMs. Is it liquidity? Is it users for LLMs? Is it just data points? Is it the uniqueness of how those models are trained? And, you know, guys like us can't retrain models with that. Like we're not neural network engineers. So it's like, is that the mode on like the uniqueness of some, something there? Um, yeah, I, I have no prediction on that respect, but I'm just curious to know like how that, how that probably manifests because I, I think it will. Well, I, th I think we'll see a lot of growth comparatively to how we see growth in crypto, right? Where all of a sudden a, a developer like releases a model that does something wildly fun and and maybe quite horrible at the same time, and people just flock to it, and it becomes uh, a self-reinforcing meme 
that just grows and grows and grows. And uh, I think that's I think that's what they're worried about, where we have AI, which can essentially meme itself into existence through these different model generations. And they've seen that they they they've been unable to control things in crypto land. So why not just double down and and push for insane regulations before this industry is even off the ground? Plus, like all the all the weird fears about alignment and the like yeah, the eventual AI overlords. I just think it's all a bunch of bullshit. But <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you on that. Not just because it's it's a to me it's like a a, a fear exercise and control one masquerading as a cognitive one. Like the amount of of guesses that go into a lot of these like extrapolations that I see on just assuming in, uh, intention and what have you is just like the likelihood of any of this manifesting, like any of our completely outlier, like humanity is going to die scenarios. Like we saw on COVID, like we, you know, see with, I don't know, Y2K, like you just see all of these doomsday type predictions on new events that just, I don't know, humanity tends to march on because the way you think the doom scenario just doesn't manifest. And to me, this is just the most perfect way to present the same kind of COVID as playbook where you have an unknown event, maybe, maybe in a super, super out there scenario, a lot of experts can model and experts in quotes can model a situation where all of humanity dies. So this represents a beautiful pretext to, to exert control over the way that this thing is allowed to exist. And mm -hmm. this is the most important technology of our time. And, you know, you, you, unsurprisingly, who do you see on the timeline all the time from an AI standpoint, you see Eliza Yudowski, Right. You, you see you see all the people who are man, on, on TED Talks manifesting fear, bad. Oh, my God. Terrible. Like the same way you saw with, with Fauci and all the people back then where it's like, ah, this might kill everyone. And what do you what are you able to accomplish with that? You can manufacture consent to draw from like Chomsky's phrasing there. Manufacture consent based on fear that makes people willing and happy to give you control to protect them because you're telling them how this might hurt and harm them. You're And you're marching out the most neurotic people you possibly can on how this might occur and putting their scenario as the likely one or the plausible one. And then you guys got guys like Sam Altman who are obviously acting in a, a sense of regulatory capture. Like I just, it's just, <laughs> I, it just seems so obvious that that's, because uh, that, that's the playbook. Like, and that's not even a Sam Altman thing. That's an, any business does this thing. That's just how the world works. They want a regulatory capture when they're there first. Like, just accept that as a reality. So accepting that as a reality, it's like, guys, like, push back on this. Like, understand the, the playbook here. It's going to be the same playbook like COVID. They've done it before. And just, you know, hey, build and do what you can to get around that because they're going to try to put, exert control over that predicated on doomsday scenarios because that's the exact trend you see now with who's getting visibility. Switching gears a bit. Uh, You're just great, you're just great. You're officially one of my favorite uh, accounts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, it. I, I'm, uh, I, I'm having so much fun uh, even listening to you most of the time and uh, your ideas and the way you express them. Honestly, uh, can definitely uh, relate and appreciate your uh, thoughts. And, uh, I really, pre I really appreciate that, man. That means a lot. So, uh, yeah, so for those who aren't uh, familiar, could you explain what it means to be a Fed disrespecter? <laughs> um, yeah, it takes uh, it's it's a uh, it's a double entendre, I guess. But the the way it primarily comes um, was is a series I have on on the Federal Reserve. So uh, and basically how you know this was a this was kind of a realization for me a couple years ago when I started looking into how QE worked and seeing kind of what actually happens and based off the messaging of what happens. 
And the messaging is money printing. The messaging is what Balaji says. It's just, uh, they're dumping money everywhere. I was like, okay, wow. Like, you know, trillions of dollars, like, you know, billion, you know the Fed's balance sheet, like, holy shit. Like, why isn't inflation higher? Like, that's just weird to me why inflation isn't higher. And like, I see the market reaction, but I don't see all this reaction that suggests money printing. And then you look into what's occurring and it, it's just, it's just bank balance sheet movement. Like they just move around basically a balance sheet of bank assets. They just swap bonds for M2 for money, which shows up as cash in the M2 um, statement, M2 reading. And it gets a lot of headlines and people tend to think risk on dive in, et cetera, let's go. So like, okay, that just, that felt off to me. And then I looked into like more and more of how they do the things they say they're doing and kind of how the yield curve in like 10 year bonds and U S treasuries work. And <laughs> my takeaway and the, the essence of the fed fed series that I'm working on is that this entity does not have the controller power that it's presented as having at all. Um, I it's, it's, I would describe it as like 85% a psychological institution and tool. It does do something like I'm not saying the Fed does nothing, but I think it has about 10 to 15 percent of the power that it's purported to have. Um, and the Fed disrespecting means disrespect this institution, disrespect the Federal Reserve, like stop giving the headlines and the commentary on whether or not they're going to raise rates by 25 basis points, which, by the way, when they raise the interest rate, they raise the target range on the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is a rate is a rate that banks pay. And, you know, repo markets pay for overnight money, overnight lending. That's what that is. And they don't even control it directly. They set a target range for it and then have some tools where they try to keep it in that range. But it, it bounces out of that range, though, sometimes. And, and setting that tells you, tells the 10-year bond what to do. The 30-year bond, like, no, like, it doesn't say, it doesn't dictate to that. And if you look at historically how these bonds have moved, and this is what my next thread in the series is going to be that the Fed does not control interest rates. It's going to break down, and I won't spoiler it too much, but it's going to break down like what goes into the 10-year bond, like what actually manifests from that, how much do they, <laughs> what happens when they raise rates to lower rates, and what, is this, what does this asset do? So uh, the essence of it, though, is to stop letting this psychological institution control you psychologically. They want headlines. They want you to look at them. They want you to pay attention to them. And everything you know about the Federal Reserve comes from the Federal Reserve, everything. Every, it comes from CNBC, which is a mouthpiece for the Federal Reserve. They will say everything one-to-one -one that a federal agent says about the power and majesty and omnipresence and omniscience of this institution. It's like asking a priest if God exists. Like, it's like going to a church and like, just is the power of God, everything you say is like, obviously, like you don't go to a priest to learn about real questions, right? Because you know his message. So the essence of that is stop listening to lackeys for Davos and Fed and the Federal Reserve, because they're going to say exactly what you think they're going to say. And this messaging comes from entities that need to defend this institution. So obviously, they're going to say things that way and approach it differently and actually look at what happens different from the headline. And when I look at what's diff what's actually going on, I don't see an agency that actually controls much of anything and that operates purely off lagging indicators and is somehow a leading indicator. They lead things by operating off lagging indicators. Like just remember like what they operate on, unemployment, um, inflation. Those are, you know, everything that feeds it. Like those are lagging, that's lagging information. That's stuff that's already happened. And they're leading it by reacting to it. Like even the logic of that, it's just, this is not an entity that has the power that it's given. And I trying to rally a visibility on that. Yeah. That was a lot. So <laughs> I understand. Yeah, yeah. I know. 
would, would the would the obvious counterpoint to that though just be that like the money supply has done like had very like tangible effects for the past few years? Was that just a psychological um, after effect of the Fed raising rates, or like did the Fed actually like um, influence the money supply? So I mean, they definitely can directly influence the money supply, but they do that via swapping. Like the bond, the, the Fed cannot create things. The bond can swap. The, the Fed can swap things. So when they do QE, what they do is they go to banks. They say, hey, listen, you got treasuries. You have MBS. Give us those. Here's cash for it. So imagine, imagine you as a person with a checking and a savings account, right? Imagine you have a checking and a savings account. Um, the savings account is the bond that pays you a little dividend, and I have it on my balance sheet. It's a tool for repo. And I swapped your savings account with a checking account. Okay, but you still have $10,000, right? It's like, okay, well... I guess maybe uh, maybe I'll spend it. Like that's their hope that they'll maybe lend against it. Um, none of that happens. Like the banks, like the velocity of money stays the same or goes down. Banks are not lending anymore. I haven't seen any data that shows in like the Z1 data that shows that credit creation is elevated because like banks lending money is what creates dollars. Like that's fractional reserve banking. So the Fed does this swapping game. It blows up the M2 chart though because bonds are not part of M2. You know, that's a big thing. And the M2 chart is when everyone looks at when, when, you, the, at the, at when you're pointing to like money creation, you're looking at the M2 chart, which is like time deposits, cash, and like things that can rapidly be changed to cash. I think money market funds, um, it's, it's not bonds though. And so you take a treasury bond away from the bank that's not M2. I take a million dollar treasury bond away from them. I give them a million dollars in cash. Whoa, I just made a million. There's a million dollars more of cash in the world. But there's not a, there's not a million dollars more of assets in the world. The assets in the world stay the same. And that's the big emphasis I have is assets. They can't create assets. So when they do this game, they trot everyone on, on CNBC and onto 60 Minutes. Uh, and I have, I'm going to put this out in a thread too, where it's like, what, what did Bryn Bernanke do? He goes on to 60 Minutes. We're going to print money. Janet Yellen goes on to 60 Minutes. We're printing money. Jay Powell, like they all go out and they say the same thing. Like that messaging is deeply important. Why do people on 60 Minutes need to know about like the monetary inner workings of what should be an esoteric Fed operation? What's the point of that? The point of that is raising awareness. So like every money manager in the world wakes up the next day, sees that and sees green light. Like that has a very, very strong psychological effect on why they trot out all of their lackeys, you know, Bullard, Brainerd, et cetera, onto CNBC, onto everywhere. And they all say the same thing. And that, that is deeply important. And that basically gives this feeling of like, all right, I'm safe. Like the money, the, 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 the infinite money pit has got my back. Let's buy um, as far as like risk assets responding that way, like I genuinely think that is the answer. And I honestly think like that answer will get exposed as true maybe in like a decade or something. Once AGI is so smart, it's like, no, like, you know, like that, that doesn't like, it's not doing anything in that way. Um, so I, I think the psychology of that is like, is far and away the most important. I think you see the evidence of that when you look at Fed announcements and behavior and how deeply visible they are and how they go out of their way for this messaging, even on normie mm -hmm. core shows, and the uniformity of that messaging. Well, can I can I just um, can I just yeah, I'll stop to, uh, play devil's advocate here? Sure. Um, the bond market is volatile, and the ups and downs can probably seem a little bit uh, discombobulating to both money managers, banks, and retail people who are trying to plan. And so, what if the Fed is just trying to calm and assuage the fears because like you said for the money supply to go there needs to be more loan creation and for there to be more loan creation banks have to decide oh hey we're going to green light these projects 
And if we don't green light those projects, we just don't see any growth and nobody's going to start building. Nobody will construct. Nobody will form new businesses. Uh, money creation doesn't happen because like money creation is fine. So long as you have a equal amount of like GDP creation or, um, you know, you start, you, you borrow a hundred million dollars, you start a company, that company creates $10 billion worth of value, right. Uh, in, in new markets or something. That's, that's what they're hoping for. Right. Um, so you need, you need a nice, warm, friendly face to get up there and tell you that everything is okay. Their economy is great. You should take loans. Interest rates are not going to spike too high and that you can plan for the future. Yeah, but I mean, that speaks exactly to the psychological angling though. Like that's part and parcel kind of my point. Like the point is them to go out and to make these entities. I I'm not even calling that like deeply nefarious, I guess I should say. Like that is important because people will not act if they feel uncertain. People hate uncertainty. Like we're more comfortable with a known bad than an unknown unknown. Right. As long as we kind of know what to plan for, like that's an ingrained human characteristic is to fundamentally hate not knowing what happens next. We'd rather know something bad happens than not know at all. Well, and a lot of just just to stop there, like the, the unknown is is typically what leads to these panics. Right. A lot of what right. the, a lot of the Fed does. I mean, like in normal functioning times, I mean, their job isn't that really important. But when shit's hitting the fan. When people are pulling billions of dollars out of commercial banks like Silicon Valley or First Republic or whatever in in the course of a couple of days, you know, if if unchecked, I mean, those could lead to a or at least I'm sure they think that those things could lead to a, uh, a like a, an all in all panic where people just start doing irrational things because everybody else is doing irrational things. And then the market gets completely broken because people get scared that their money's not going to be able to be taken out of the bank or that like asset prices are going to be falling a huge amount or something like I, I I just think that there is you have to be able to talk markets and there has to be a face to uh, the, these these systems right even if even if they can't even if they don't control it because I don't think the Fed does much to control the bond market or the money supply that's that's it's too decentralized right? Um, but what they can do is they can assuage everyone who works at a bank or you and I to, to build a house, to take out a loan, to like fund a business. Uh, because if you don't, if you have that uncertainty, then you turn into these like emerging economies where you don't have that safety. Maybe you talk about right. it where like you wonder why everybody leaves and comes here. It's because our financial safety and, and security is, is just, we believe in it more. Right. And it is a, 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 a belief system. So there needs to be these like high priests that go out and tell us everything's okay. And to rephrase this slightly, if you know, even if we grant that what's going on here is just psychological operations, it's isn't it also the case that money is also just psychological? So it's sort of like the perfect weapon to control, you know, psychological games to control a psychological effect. Yeah, yeah. So to answer those um respectively, on your point, um Sam on like based on, on the banking issue and the feds involvement there like i want to disentangle like fed behaviors here i i'm speaking about qe mm -hmm. and about behaviors where that is signaling to money managers and to markets risk on we're controlling the yield curve we got this we're dumping we're, we're printing money like when they say that term and they use that term explicitly intentionally 
even though that's not what's happening. Yeah. They use that messaging consistently. So that's on the QE front. On the front that you're talking about, which is on the banking crisis thing, that, I mean, that is also psychological, right? But that is, that's not what I'm describing as nefarious so much. I, I do think backstopping and letting people know that, that banks are being backstopped by this entity is important. I think the BTFP program was important. I think it was necessary. It also was not money printing. It is simply a factoring loan using bonds as, as, the, as, the, as the collateral. Um, corporations do it all the time. Uh, and, you know, it, it is, there's a reason <laughs> held to market accounts, um, held to maturity accounts are, are a thing for a reason. <laughs> like, why do you think those exist for banks? It's because they get wiped out on paper when rates move. Like, obviously this always happens. Like, this isn't new that when rates go up, banks get destroyed. And any bank, if you put a run on them, especially when everyone on social media is saying, hey, 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 go, 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 would get wiped out. Like, this isn't like some exigent, horrible brand new thing that we've never encountered before and i see guys like balaji and arthur hopping on that like the world is ending it's like no like uh, banks are in a tough spot because of rates the, the fed and fdic back that up they should message that letting people know hey we're backing this up like the banking system is okay obviously because we're going to give loans and it's a loan emphasis on loan because the fed's fronting that deposit money and then when the bank when the bond comes due or what have you like that's paid back i want to emphasize the fed has made money and the treasury has made money on behaviors historically here even like tarp and back in like the great uh the financial crisis where they where they did all that issuance and they bought fannie mae and freddie mac what have you the taxpayers made money from that like they bought assets on the low flushed it out and then they got repaid with interest so like this is almost like viewing it from a business decision lens like again these are like almost pragmatic if you view the government as like a quasi business here. So like it's like some of these things don't even cost taxpayers money. They've been profitable for the federal government. Um, and I do think that messaging is important and I'm not denigrating it. At, that is like evil. Um, what I am saying though, especially with QE and stuff is it can frame this correct. Like I, I what really bothers me more than anything. And, and I cover this in the fed part zero is like the point of this is to stop hyper fixating on someone doing jumping jacks and somersaults in front of you and focus on the arsonist behind her which is fiscal policy, which is the debt, which is the, the debt. And, you know, that is money printing when fiscal issues bonds to fund their spending that is extravagant and they can't, you know, they don't have the, the, the taxation to support that. That is what's causing problems. And that's the issue here. The Fed enables that a little bit. I'm not discrediting that. You can make some like second and third order arguments on QE that what it does is it can increase treasury demand eventually in a way that lets fiscal issue more bonds there's some truth to that. I just don't think there's that much fucking truth. To that. I think it's very little. Um, the Fed owns roughly about 20% right now of outstanding treasury bonds, 20%. So like you're telling me if that 20, if we had 20% less debt, our problems would be different? Like, I, no, they really wouldn't. And to me, that's like, I don't know how else you quantify the Fed's attribution to this issue other than like this, that roughly. And to me, it's about 20%. Um, and so that that's the kind of viewpoint there is like, stop giving this institution credibility and focus. In the 1970s and 60s, apparently, this is before my time, apparently people didn't even know who the Federal Reserve official was, or they, like the 80s or something. Like Fed policy was not a headline news thing, is the point. And then Fed policy has increasingly become more and more like a headline news thing. And just ask yourself, like, why? Like, there's a psychological component to that. And I think it's because if you didn't know QE was happening, I don't think you'd know QE was happening. I think it just, you, you just, you know. Um, and then to... uh. To the second point um, curve that you made on 
Oh, what was your point again? Is, is money just uh, psychological? I'm sorry. Oh, well, I don't, yeah. I, yeah. I don't think I don't look. I, I mean, I half believe that. I, I think that like it's not fake, but it, it is like it has value that we give it. Right. And, um, you know, you can you can adjust those value points. But I always think that we 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 have to value something. Right. And so, of course. Yeah. And it, worship something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a belief system. Yeah, but I, I don't think I don't think it's something that we invent. I just think it's something that, like, by process of enumerating and sorting the world, we we create value systems, and those value systems are just inherent, and they're not they're not like social. Yes, it's a social creation, but it's it's innate. It's not it's not yeah. something that we can uh, reconstruct. I, I think it's, it's, information it's something system. we simply yeah. agree upon, and when and when we see the majority uh, agree upon something, it's uh, so much easier for us to agree upon as well. So a dollar is a dollar because it's a dollar, and as everyone thinks it's a dollar. I think for ninety nine percent of the people, that's how it works. Yeah, I mean, money is just a, a standardized form of, of information oh, yeah. sharing. Like mm -hmm. it's it, money, just money exists. Like it, it, slandering, like money is like you know, I heard this in like a Lex Friedman statement. It's like money is made up; it doesn't have value. Like uh, money is just exists because bartering is is not feasible. Like mm -hmm. I mean, that's basically yeah. Like if bartering was something that uh, could be facilitated or technology could accomplish, like yeah, I think you'd see it in decreased demand for money. Um, that's on the transacting front, and the other secondary, like it's either a transaction tool or it's a store of value. And money historically actually is not actually that great a store of value. It depends on the money, I suppose. Um, but all it is, is is humans unifying around something that they recognize as having characteristics that either retain value or facilitate transactions. And usually the most successful currency is the thing is the thing that does that in the most stable fashion. That's basically it. Like there's no fetish for dollars here is why most people take U.S. dollars. Like the, the reason people accept U.S. dollar for settlement is because it's the most stable. Like the U.S. is the most stable, large superpower. The dollar is relatively, again, stable relative to its peers. And it's a widely accepted medium of exchange. And it will be that until it stops being that, which will just take people being more circumspective fiscal policy or actions that make them lose confidence in the dollar. But it is ultimately a confidence game. But that confidence allows us to interact freely in the world and basically communicate. Like it's a form of communication of value. Sure, um, sure. So. But like you know, you talked about Lex Friedman's thing about how it's just all fake and made up. Like I don't know. That's not true because like it's a, yeah, it's right. an. I think it's a natural extension of our like moral uh, and epistemic understanding of the world. And you, I don't think you can. I don't think you can get rid of that, right? And so when we, we talk about these money systems, it's not even it's not even that they're like fake and made up, whatever. No, it's not true. It's just you're right. It's an information system that transfers in like value back and forth. And the we we have the dollar. The dollar is just a uh, a way of valuing something because like there is no there is no one dollar type, right? There's a lot of different dollar types. But it's more about the system of loans and accounting and judicial uh, process uh, that allows you know companies to be formed and business to be carried out. And you can change these things, but we're in a global competitive setting, and people like the dollar for what it provides and and how they can use it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, totally. Like, and and I think the Lex's take on you know, or any like the take just in general is like, man, money's just this made up thing. Why do we trust it? Like, that's like what an very like sapiens. It's like very fucking sapiens. Yes. Take. Yeah, exactly. That that's like what a smart thirteen year old kind of realizes or, or thinks about religion. 
Like yeah, it's like describing what, religion as a sky as a sky wizard or something. Like you're really missing the point on what religion is if you reduce it to like its nominal manifestations. The same way you're really missing the bus on what money is if you just view it as a piece of paper with a face on it. Yeah, and like coming back to Lex, like I think of him like you look at like, bring this whole thing back into milady culture, right? Like Lex is the person, <laughs> Lex is the person trying to be in the scene for milady culture, right? That like sees that is a normie person from the outside who like sees the culture but is not able to recreate it within himself because he just lacks the um the i don't know je ne sais quoi or like some some like something wrong with him inside right and so he's ever striving to be this like shell of a of an ideal that is pursuing milady culture, but is never able to. He's a hive mind. He's a hive mind proxy. Like you can tell hive mind proxies versus like, you know, it's funny, it's trite, but I genuinely think this is a, a manifestation of like soft Asperger's or light autism when you are relatively immune to propaganda or to, you know, I, I think that's fundamentally, if we want to distill autism down to like what we mean when we say it, it means you're rigidly logical in a way that misses social cues, right? Kind of like the Dwight Schrute awkward, um, you know, I'm, I'm missing on these social elements, but I'm being very smart and logical. Like that's one form of it, or it's being immune to a consensus viewpoint that you just don't think is right. That's basically it. You're, 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 you're immune to like these messaging. That's all saying the same thing. And you fundamentally are able to view that independently and assess it on your own terms. And I think when you see someone who struggles with stuff like that, like, yeah, that's uh, not someone that doesn't, they don't get any autism points basically. Uh, so. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, I wish we had several more hours to discuss this, like maybe in a dorm room with a box of pizza and like, you know, exams that we were putting off to discuss the grander things. Um, before you bounce, though, back the bunny, uh, you have a protocol called RabbitX, which you describe as uh, perps on StarkNet. Is that correct? Could you uh, go ahead and plug that or anything else you'd like to plug? Yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate that. Yeah. So uh, RabbitX, we're perpetuals decks on StarkNet. Uh, great community, amazing team. Um, mainnet has been going super well for us. Uh, we did 130 million in volume during closed mainnet, and we offer up to 20 times leverage, uh, gasless trading, um, perpetuals on uh, eight markets right now, including the, all the majors, Arbitrum, um, Arb, ARB, Doge, uh, Sui, Pepe. We're adding markets all the time. Um, we're an order book model where our model is very similar to DYDX for people who have questions about like structure and how the order book works and things like that. Um, go visit my profile, join our discord, happy to answer any questions. But if you know how DYDX works, it's, it's basically that. Um, but you know, we, we want to own this space in a big way. Our, our goal is more than just perps. Our goal is derivatives in any form, including commodities, FX, um, and a lot of other things, interest rate swaps. So we're starting with perpetuals because perps already have a strong market uh, product market fit in DeFi. Um, they're, they're a product people know and understand. Um, we're getting some great initial traction there and we're gonna keep going full steam. Um, really strong, talented team, great backing. And I'm, I feel really grateful to be uh, working and helping with this and, and all the stuff I've learned throughout this process. So check us out, all the info is on our profile. And if you're a perps trader or a trader of any kind, uh, yeah, join Discord, look at our docs. You know, we're as good as anybody. In fact, I think we're better and we are objectively the cheapest. Um, we have gas-free trading. I'm happy to explain on how we pull that off if you want to ask. Um, and our fees are the lowest in the industry as far as I've seen. Um, there are no maker fees and we have a small taker fee that is, again, lowest that I've seen. So, 
Excellent. Excellent. I'll, uh, I'll be checking that out. Uh, thank you so much. And please come and join us anytime there's anything you'd like to talk about. Always welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. Reach out. Uh, I'm happy to test more. I really enjoy this. Amazing. Well, until, until the tide returns, <laughs> our Leviathan news, and we'll be back tomorrow. Amen. Thanks a lot, guys. Goodbye. Awesome. Thanks, Dia, uh, advisor. Nice meeting you, man. What's your name again?